0: This is Scott Richmond, the director for New York and New Jersey for ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, coming to you from the front lines. ADL is on the front line every day fighting anti-Semitism and hate. And this new show brings that to you. I will add how great it is to be back at WVOX 1460 AM after more than a year. The front line for me for the past few weeks was the conflict in Israel. And that is the subject of today's show. But my focus is not on Hamas Or Gaza, it is on Israeli society because that is what ADL has been working to strengthen for decades. My esteemed colleague Carol Nuriel carries out this work as the director of our office in Israel, and she is my guest today. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Scott, and hi and good evening from Israel, Carol. While the
0: fighting raged in Gaza and the rockets headed for Israeli cities, there was another parallel story. A story of neighbor against neighbor in some cases, Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs engaging in violent acts against one another. What was different about this moment that led to this?
1: You know, Scott, in many ways, for many Israelis, it's been a sort of a moment of crisis when they understood one thing, which is how fragile and how explosive, how explosive everything can be. But I think that the biggest difference, this um, time from past conflicts, has been that the Hamas has made it so, sort of such a success to tie everything around Jerusalem, the issue of Jerusalem and Aqsa. Now, no wonder that this is the issue, because it's been such an important issue for the Palestinian national struggle, I mean, one of the three main issues for them. But the fact that now Israeli Arabs, they are joining it was really a big
0: surprise. Why do you think they joined this time? I mean, there have been so many conflicts in the past, and the Israeli-Arab community really were were relatively quiet.
1: So you're asking such an important question, Scott, and I will delve deeper into some of what's been happening in recent years, but what was the most surprising in the outburst of the current crisis is that it happened when the positive role of Israeli Arabs in helping society during the pandemic or at the Meron tragedy that only took place three weeks ago, uh, hard to believe, especially as medical staff was publicly acknowledged. But no less important is that it came at a time when Jewish-Arab relations seemed to be moving in the right direction with more willingness on both sides of the political map to cooperate. Certainly the
0: coalition, the coalition for change, Uh, it looked like we were going to have an uh, Israeli-Arab party in the government.
1: Right, Scott, and you know what's interesting is that um, it doesn't matter which political side you're, you're at because both of them, both right and left, were considering and, and are still considering having um, the, the, the Islamic police as part of the government, and that's new. And, and some people say, and that might be even true, that what we've seen is a sort of a counter-reaction to this advancement.
0: So let, let's take a, a step back. Prior to the events of the past few weeks, what what was the status of Israeli Arabs in Israeli society?
1: So there are two ways to answer this question. One is from a legal perspective, and because we're talking about status. And the second is from a sort of a social societal one. Legally, Israeli Arabs are citizens of the state of Israel, and they deserve full equality according to the Declaration of Independence and the Basic Law of Israel. At the same time, there are some barriers like the nation-state law. So while it's aimed to strengthen the Jewish character of the state, which is legitimate, it also includes elements that potentially could impact the status of non-Jewish citizens of Israel, specifically Israeli Arabs. And there's also the issue of military service, that while being an equalizer for the Jewish population, serves as a major differentiator with Israeli Arabs. So although we see some changes here as well, like more Israeli Arabs who do national service in addition to some others who choose to join the IDF, this is still an issue. But I think that the question is um, the social status.
0: You speak of Israeli Arabs joining the army. I think it's it's an extraordinary phenomenon, but it's it's still few and far between. And uh, you know, the the army is a place where where in Israeli society this is where you meet many of your lifelong friends and build your connections. And it's hard to to be a part of of that society without that experience. That's
1: right. That's right, Scott. And I think that that for this uh, for this exact reason does also. Um, a very harsh reaction within um, the Israeli Arab society to this phenomenon. So it's not that common. We see it here and there, but it's not that common.
0: We should talk for a moment about the status of Israeli Arabs in society in terms of professions. Uh, certainly during this conflict, we saw the, the work of Israeli Arabs in the healthcare industry, a very important place for them.
1: Yes, you know, while there are many areas of assimilation and that has even grown in recent years in employment, as you just mentioned, uh, there are still parallel trends of separatism, whereby Israeli Arabs either choose not to integrate and at least ideologically see themselves not as Israeli, or that the majority in some places do not see them as an integral place, uh, as an integral part. Uh, be it because of their identification with the Palestinian struggle or other reasons, but even when you mention this integration in the employment sphere, and that's been, you know, in the medical staff. I mean, that, that's that's the most successful example of it. I think that there's still a lot of challenges, and and this uh, crisis is an opportunity to unpack all of these questions.
0: I think we're getting to the heart of this. How badly damaged are relations as a result of the events of the past few weeks?
1: I would say, Scott, that I'm not sure that I joined those who feel that we're witnessing the crumbling of Israel's social fabric. But I do have a couple of thoughts about it. So while I don't think that the coexistence and the shared living industry has collapsed, I do believe that there's one thing we should restore, which is a sense of trust that got lost in the last couple of days, part of the published public discourse that we saw was, so why did we believe we could do it? Were we mistaken? And so on. And my answer to that is that the fact that we have got to a crisis doesn't mean that the road was wrong. And actually some say, as I just mentioned, that um, this is a sort of a counter reaction to the advancement in the relationship. And... Look, I also think that as a Jewish state, as a Jewish majority, this crisis is putting the reality in front of us. And now we have to deal with the elephant in the room, which is not, you know, the 80 percent we agree on, but really the 20 percent on which we don't, mainly the issue of identity of Israeli Arabs. And for a big part, they feel Palestinians. So we as Israelis have to deal with it. And let me end just with saying that it's also an opportunity um, to verify, to look into other deep-rooted issues that exist such as high level of crime, illegal weapons in the Arab society, as well as ignoring by the state, by the authorities, welfare and infrastructure issues, also the lack of proper urban processes. So there are a lot of issues. And I think that the more we get into the weeds and solve these issues, we will be more successful in, you know, building this cohesion that we all
0: need. Over the past few weeks, there uh, have been some really difficult moments, but there have also been some really beautiful moments of people who were saying, both Jews and Arabs, who were saying, this is not who we are. We are are better than this. We are more together than this. And we're going to prove it. Uh, Maybe talk a little bit, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about some of these beautiful gestures that uh, occurred over the past few weeks to show this.
1: There were many grassroots initiatives, and that's always heartwarming and encouraging. But for me, what stood out was was really uh, the business sector. Some of them got a lot of criticism for that, for standing up, for coexistence and shared living, because I think that it got confused in the public discourse with sort of supporting uh, Hamas. So if you support coexistence and you living, that means that you're on the other side. And that was not the message. But I think that that also this sense of, of support, of efforts to reconciliate, also need to include more players. And I would like to see such expressions from the political and social right.
0: This is something that, professionally you've been doing for decades. Uh, Building a more cohesive Israeli society uh, is what you do. Tell us how you do that, how you go about that.
1: So thank you, Scott. And we've been working for some years already about promoting social cohesion, uprooting stereotypes in the public discourse, creating a sense of of the importance of a shared ethos. So we've been doing that um, for many, many years now. And I think that for, for us as ADL, it's very important to come out not only as criticizing when it's wrong, fixing when it doesn't work, but also be constructive and create this safe space for conversation, for tough conversation about the burning issues for the Israeli society, and at the same time, really, really, really representing all voices. So we work a lot in the field of advocacy. So, for example, advocating um, on the nation-state law, advocating on more presence of the Arabic language in the public sphere, um, calls not to stigmatize entire populations within Israel. By the way, not only Arabs, but also for Orthodox communities or other communities that are being stigmatized and stereotyped or generalized about. Um, We also work a lot in the field of education, especially in reducing stereotypes and prejudice. And unfortunately, we see that this is an underlying element within the Israeli society. And, we, and there's still a lot of work to be done. So we've been doing that for 25 years, but we still need to continue and work on it. And and lastly, ADL Israel has become a leading convener on issues related to social cohesion with an annual conference that we hold, bringing... Um, all voices all voices from the Israeli society on issues of the day and um, big topics that all Israelis should care about as a society it's been generally er, generating a lot of uh, reaction within the Israeli society and that's what really we wanted to achieve um, and also coming to it from a place where you provide a platform to all voices to be heard especially those who are voiceless, the communities that are voiceless in the public discourse has just become a personal mission for me as well.
0: And, you know, you do that in a very practical way. I mean, this summit that you're talking about, uh, you were really a a leader in terms of making that accessible for the Arabic-speaking community by translating the entire summit into Arabic.
1: Right. It's hard to believe, Scott, but we live in a place where 25% of, of you know, the population of the country speak a different language, which is Arabic. Not only that, Israel is surrounded by Arab countries. You would believe that Arabic would be not the number two, but just an equal language to uh, to Hebrew for ideological, social, and also practical reasons. And it's not. Unfortunately, it's not mandatory in schools. It's it's a language that people identify with the enemy, for example, and that's a problem. That's a huge problem. So this is why we as ABL Israel made a strategic decision and and knowing the implications of it, that we will translate the the, the, the conference to Arabic and make it accessible to Arabic-speaking audiences equally, the way we have the Hebrew uh, version.
0: I think that people uh, in this country don't realize the work that's being done by ADL in Israel and, and certainly we are uh, we're concerned about uh, Israel and, and its safety and security but uh, your day to day work is really much more about the kinds of things we do in this country fighting hate, fighting discrimination uh, and, and trying to bring together different parts of society and, and build bridges. Uh, which is so much of of what I do as the regional director here in New York and New Jersey.
1: Absolutely, Scott. And, you know, I don't think that there's a, a huge difference. But when we talk about security, when we talk about safety, when we talk about national fortitude, then the social cohesion element is a very important one because when you have a cohesive society, a society that knows how to speak with one another, that creates enough points of encounter with one another, that doesn't create this alienation that we see, this growing alienation that we see, then I think that you're in the right direction also uh, vis-a-vis security and safety.
0: I couldn't agree more. And uh, I think... You know we've been through a, a crisis period here, but going forward, uh, we all need to work together constructively and you're, you're certainly poised to uh, to do that. So my, my question for you is, um, given your unique position and the the serious damage that's been done over the past few weeks, what are what are your next steps to to help repair this damage?
1: So we at ADL Israel, first of all, we have convened last week a sort of an emergency forum of civil society organizations in Israel. And we're planning to be part of such a forum in the future because as the dust settles, there's a lot of work to be done. And in this respect, the crisis, at least for us, serves us a, uh, as an opportunity also to recalculate our path and think about what we need to do in new ways. Also for us, always, we plan to double down on our work on social cohesion. So for example, we started working um, more and more with schools um, last week in terms of how we look at the other, how we unpack the stereotypes that we have because such a crisis brings back to the surface all kinds of stereotypes about the other, generalization, stigmatization, and Scott, as a mother of three children, I've seen that on WhatsApp groups, on Facebook groups. Children and, and youth are exposed to terrible, terrible messaging that are aimed only to bring them on one side of, or the other. But what's common to both sides is that they generalize about the other. And that's this dichotomic view of the world is a very dangerous one. Plus, it's not, it's not the reality, right? So this is why this work, is so important and so timely.
0: We certainly have uh, a fall victim to that in this country as well, the extreme polarization. So uh, I'm going to ask you then, why do you do this work? How how did you get started and and what drives you?
1: I actually have um, sort of a different personal story. My parents were born in Morocco as um, children of Moroccan Jews. I studied in schools uh, in French because um, Morocco was under uh, the French mandate. So they spoke French, and they could not communicate with their parents in Arabic, in their own language. There was a sort of um, a generational gap between them because they just spoke in different languages and even different cultural nuances. Mm-hmm. When I grew up, um, I wanted to understand my grandmother's language. I wanted to be able to communicate with them in their own language. And I decided to learn Arabic. I have to tell you, Scott, I fell in love not only with with the linguistic part, which is very interesting and so close to Hebrew, because both of them are Semite languages, but also because it opened up for me such a huge field of culture and understanding Of the other, the one that is close to me here is really Arabs, but also others in other Arab countries. And it also, I would say, mentally just opened up my mind to just a different sort of understanding and concepts of life without being judgmental. So how do I take my, you know, sort of liberal um, uh, concept of life, philosophy of life, And do not apply it on others who have a different set of values. That's a huge learning. And I think that just by learning Arabic and and specializing in Quran and and Arabic traditions, I learned a lot about how to be open to other cultures.
0: And how is that received when people understand that about Jews, especially Israeli Arabs?
1: With a lot of respect. Because they feel... That they they are treated and their culture is treated with a lot of respect. So I would go to places, for example, and meet with Israeli Arabs and cite from the Quran, and they're like, "Wow, I don't even know to cite from the Quran. How do you know?" So it makes them it, it makes them feel that they are being listened, to, that they are being considered. You know, I remember I think it was a couple of years ago in one of the crisis... I think it was right after the protective edge in 2014, and I went to the supermarket, and somebody helped me, somebody from East Jerusalem, and I spoke with him in Arabic. And he had tears in his eyes. saying to me, wow. No, nobody, a Jew, nobody spoke to me in Arabic. And for me, that's a message that I want to convey. Go and study the language of the other, because the language is a bridge.
0: That is a beautiful note to end on, Carol. Uh, Callik a vote, as they say. Kudos to you for the incredibly important work that you do building Israeli society, uh, which seems more important now than ever. And thank you for being on today's show.
1: Thank you, so
0: much. Uh I will return on Monday, June fourteenth, with another important guest from the front lines.